It is possible to be thankful every moment, every day. It, it takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. Hi, and welcome to Tell Me What Happened, the podcast that features people from all walks of life talking about real events from their childhood and how those events impacted their lives. I'm your host, Jay Rehack. And I love listening to stories from people's childhoods, which also help me understand who those people are. Tell Me What Happened is sponsored by Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including Susan Salador's children's book, I've Got Peace in My Fingers, available worldwide wherever quality books are sold. Tell Me What Happened is also sponsored by LaughSaver.com. Visit LaughSaver.com and record your laughter. LaughSaver.com will keep it for you, now and forever. Your family will appreciate it. It's free, and it's easy to use. That's LaughSaver.com. Today, I'm fortunate to have as my guest, Roy Huff, an award-winning, best-selling science fiction author. Roy is Hawaii-based. He's also a research scientist and a teacher. He has worked on projects for NASA's Gozar Proving Ground, and has written numerous science fiction bestsellers, including his latest, Seven Rules of Time Travel. Roy is also the author of the Everhill Science Fiction series. Thanks, Roy, for coming on to Tell Me What Happened. I look forward to hearing your story, although I know it deals with a great deal of family pain. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I love the idea of listening to an author tell us a story about their childhood. I teach high school English classes, and they love to hear stories from real writers. So I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Are you ready to tell it, Roy? Yes, I am. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stay out of it. I'm going to mute myself. I'll try not to interrupt. The microphone is all yours, Roy. Thank you. Well, I have quite a long story, and I could probably talk about a lot of different aspects of my life. And I think they kind of uh, go together, a lot of them. One of the biggest events that happened in my life was when I found out that my father was HIV positive. I was in the eighth grade. And like a lot of things that happened to me in my life, just because of the traumatic events and the challenges that I've had, at the time, it didn't seem that big of a deal. I mean, it's kind of like, is this really happening? or kind of like denial. And a lot of things that happened in my life just seemed so matter of fact because I was used to those kinds of crazy things happening. I was born in Virginia, but my family moved to Kentucky. So for the first six years of my life, I lived in uh, rural Kentucky in the hills in a trailer park. And it was rundown trailer park. I remember times in the winter, we had a big hole in the bathroom and air would come in and we'd get really cold in, in the winter time. And one time the, the trailer park, the trailer itself caught on fire, it had some kind of electrical fire. And then we went out and we waited for it to stop. And then when it stopped, we went back inside and like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess we're fine. So <laughs> that was the kind of thing that I was used to growing up. And at the time, my father had been in the military, but he suffered from bipolar disorder, as did many of the people in my family, my grandfather also, some other close family members that I don't want to talk about because they're alive today. But mental illness has plagued and continues to plague uh, my family. So it's something that's very close to my heart and it's on my mind frequently. But my father suffered from bipolar disorder and he was also a, a gay man. 
and he was in the military at the time and he eventually was let go because they couldn't find him a position. And I'm assuming that's code for they didn't want him because he was gay and or because they recognized that he had some type of mental deficit. I don't know which one it is, so I can't really say, but it was clear to me that that's most likely what happened. He actually switched from one branch to another. I think if my memory serves correct, he was in the Navy and the Army, but that's why we had moved from Norfolk, uh, Virginia, I was born in Portsmouth, to Kentucky, because I I believe he was stationed uh, around Fort Knox. So we had that going on, and my parents eventually separated. My mother found out that he was gay, and I remember the last memory that I had of him before graduation was when I was four and and he stopped by and I was kind of half asleep and I said, was dad here? And then my mother said, yeah, he was here. I was like, why didn't you wake me up? I just, I I have that memory. And then I remember eating a bowl of split pea soup. So like split pea soup is just something that comes with me. Like whenever I see split pea soup in the grocery store, I kind of want to get it. And it's just a memory that I have that I associate with my dad. And I always kind of, idolized him and had this positive emotion about him, which is very different than a lot of the people near where I grew up. After we moved, eventually we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina when I was six years old. And a lot of people had resentment for their fathers not being there. But I had other challenges growing up, other physical abuse with other people. And so I just wanted to get out of the situation I was in. And so it was easy to kind of Uh, have an idealized version of my father. And I didn't know that he had a mental illness until later on. I don't know exactly. I don't remember exactly when I found out that he had a mental illness, but it was, I think it was sometime in middle school or early high school that I found out. And so as I was growing up, I didn't have as much resentment for him being gone because I, I understood that he had a disorder. And so that contributed to the reason. And then I found really early on that he was gay. I, I got in an argument with my mother and I think I was like seven or eight years old. And I said, I'm gonna go live with my dad. And then she said, you don't wanna do that cause he's gay. And I just, I just like, I didn't know, know what, what to think. I was just dumbfounded. I just, you know, I knew, knew what it meant kind of, but it was just such a kind of a shocking and just unbelievable thing. And I, I didn't understand it completely. I wasn't angry with him. I, I, and I didn't understand why that would be that much of an issue, but I was just, wow, okay. And it didn't really come up later until when I was in eighth grade and we started getting social security checks. And I, and I said, why, why are we getting social security checks? And I guess because at the time it was a fatal illness. And so we were, we were getting social security checks. And so that I found out he was HIV positive. And so I was surprised. And we didn't know where he was for a lot of the time. My mother said that he had moved to San Francisco and there were the rumors that he had been using heroin or, or IV drugs. So he was in, at least to my knowledge, a couple of high risk groups. And this was early mid eighties. And so I found out I was in eighth grade. So this was, this would, was around 1989. And so for my entire high school, I had this knowledge that my father was dying of AIDS because back then, you know, there, it was a death sentence, you know, there was medicine you could take, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as good as it is today. And so I knew at some point he would pass away, but there were times, you know, growing up and at first people weren't aware of my, my father's situation. And I think eventually I did start telling people and nobody really talked about it. Uh, But I remember one time I was in my history and English teacher's class 
and she taught both classes. And she was having a discussion about HIV AIDS. And she said that she didn't understand why they didn't just put all of them on an island. And I was just, I, I was just so upset because it didn't feel like it was fair. And I, you know, I also knew at the time that it's not spread by that kind of casual contact. And even at the time, I mean, it was pretty common knowledge. You know, it was difficult to catch. And so I was a little frustrated and upset. And so, you know, this, this kind of bothered me, but I, you know, I grew up in a very religious home. I, you know, grew up in a mixed race home. I grew up uh, a lot of things that caused a lot of conflict, you know, in different areas and, and based on different things. Uh, and my, the church that I went to was very strict and just imagining what kind of challenges, you know, my father had to face growing up because, you know, he didn't graduate high school, despite the fact that he performed very well. And I'm imagining my, I asked my mother why he didn't graduate and he was a senior. He made it all the way to senior year. He was doing very well. And I didn't get the exact reason why he didn't graduate. But seeing how the illness has affected other people in my family, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was related to some type of manic episode. But I can just imagine what he was going through, combined with the fact that he was a gay man, you know, the challenges that, that he had to uh, go through. And his mental illness made it difficult because... I've seen how this illness can ravage someone's life and how you have a job and you can't hold down a job. You, you lose a job and it gets harder to get another job. And then you burn through your connections and your social network and people uh, start to distance themselves from you. And you, you end up in a cycle where you're either in jail or in the hospital or on the street. And it's really heartbreaking. It's like you have to go through the five stages of grief over and over and over again. And getting people to accept that they have that kind of illness is challenging. And so you get victimized twice, once by the illness and then once by the people in your network who don't either believe or don't understand what you have to do. Because sometimes when you're with someone who has a mental illness, it's kind of like living in an abusive relationship. Somebody can actually become physically abusive and as much as you want to help them, you have to physically distance yourself from them, not just for yourself, but for them also. And you want to reach out to them, but you have to do it in a responsible way and in a way that they're receptive to. So you have to be aware of these social cues that they're giving off so that you can kind of read where they're at to see what kind of response you can give them. But normal people, people that are a little bit distant from the situation, they don't understand this. And the people with the, the mental illness, depending upon the severity of it, and I've seen it across the spectrum, they can lash out at people that are closest to them, the people that are trying to help them the most. And that's just the way that the illness can manifest at times. So the people that are there trying to help them the most, they get hurt the most. And a lot of times for their own sanity, they, they have to withdraw and they have to distance themselves. And that, that can be heartbreaking. I've just been in situations where I have to do that, but I have to bring myself back in. So I've mentioned it as like a parallel to almost like losing a loved one, but like not even losing a loved one, but having someone in your life who's gone missing because you, you can't actually achieve that final stage of acceptance because you don't know. So I can only imagine what he was going through. He had to go through that and he had to go through the fact that he was a gay man and this wasn't the 60s, but it still was not as accepting as it is today. I just, I, I can't imagine what he was going through. And so I never faulted him 
for not being there. I understood that he was gay. I understood that he had a mental illness. And so I couldn't hold it against him. I didn't hold it against him. Uh, and in fact, it probably allowed me to, to think of him, you know, through kind of a, a rose colored haze to, to kind of have a positive view on, on him. And so I, I always wanted to talk with him and, and to develop a relationship if I could at some point in the future. I saw him again at my graduation. So we were able to, to get in contact a little bit and he, I was able to develop a little bit of a relationship with him. But between the time I graduated and when I was 21, when he passed away, you know, his illness started to, to eat away at him. And eventually he died. The you know, cause of death was malnutrition. So did he commit suicide or did he, was it wasting from AIDS, HIV, or a combination of both? He was in multiple high-risk groups for, for suicide, and it's quite possible that that's, that's what happened, that, that you know, he did kill himself. And so I'm dealing with this now. Growing up, I, I didn't even have a full handle on the devastation that this can have, because I was not suffering from that type of illness. I was a very optimistic and positive person, and I still am today. So I was able to set aside a lot of the problems, the poverty that I had, because I did believe in a positive future. You know, I was a trackie, you know, <laughs> I, you know, it was Star Trek, the next generation. That was my thing. And, I, you know, I was looking a couple hundred years into the future and seeing all of the great advances that we had technologically and I had no doubt I was going to do great things, you know, when I grew up. Yeah, you know, I wanted to be a meteorologist. And I remember when I was four years old, I saw a TV weatherman uh, give the uh, weather. And then I went outside and I started knocking on all the trailer park doors, telling them what the weather was going to be. And from that point on, that's, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a meteorologist. And for that, I think my mother told me I wanted to be a clown. I, I don't remember the clown part, but I, I remember, I remember the, the, the weather part. And so that, that gave me a lot of focus that I think a lot of people didn't have. And so I was really excited. And science fiction and Star Trek and all of that kind of gave me an, outlet, uh, an outlet and an opportunity to kind of get outside of my own head and my own circumstance and, and my own situation. And uh, so, yeah, that's my story, basically. Right. Well, thank you, Roy, for that very powerful story. So sorry that your father suffered from the HIV and all that you went through as a young man in terms of your poverty and the struggles. And yet here you are, a very successful science fiction writer and also a man who seems to be incredibly optimistic that despite everything. So my question to you is, how exactly has that childhood experience, losing your father to HIV, how has that impacted you as a writer and a teacher and an overall human being? How has all that affected you? Yeah, you know, I, I, I mentioned that I grew up with a very positive and optimistic vision, and I still have very much a positive and optimistic vision. And I know it may not look like that right now <laughs> with all the challenges that we're facing. You know, I know a lot of people maybe have a dystopian view of the future, but I, I do not. I do not have a dystopian view of the future. I'm very optimistic. I think we will solve a lot of the challenges that we have. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy or it's going to happen overnight, but I do believe that things will improve and they'll continue to improve. And I think science fiction is a great outlet to explore those possibilities. Science can be a reflection of society. So with the challenges that we're facing, you know, we're seeing a lot of dystopian fiction out there just because people are expressing what they're seeing or their concerns. 
I tend to have more optimistic endings and an optimistic future. So that's what people read in, in my writing. And that's because that's what I like. I deal with enough pain and challenges and I like to show a path to, you know, reaching that light at the end of the tunnel. We can achieve that. And even people that have severe mental challenges or learning challenges, I believe that everybody can achieve growth. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to achieve, you're never going to achieve 100% of your goals. And a lot of that comes from having a growth mindset. And um, I love that book, you know, Mindset, you know, by Carol Dweck. And as an educator, I think it's very germane to our industry. But I also think it ties in with having an optimistic vision. If you don't believe that you can improve, if you don't believe that you can grow, if you don't believe that things can get better, you're not going to try. <laughs> you're not going to try. It doesn't mean you're always going to succeed. You know, you're probably going to fail more times and you're going to succeed. And that's just part of the process, you know. But I can explore that through the fiction, but I can also communicate that with students and hopefully educate people that they can have a life that they engineer. It may not be exactly what they hope, but they can have some say in you know, what happens in their life. So I, I think as an educator, that's important. And so I think the fiction is a great way to communicate that. It's also a great way to help teach me communication because I think to reach people through fiction, you have to be simple and precise and communicate a story in a way that they understand. And so it forces you to look at what you're saying and how you're saying it, what it is that you really want to say. So I think they're all connected. And of course, having a science background is great for writing science fiction. <laughs> so, you know, I love time travel. I love physics. I love meteorology. I mean, I love all of that stuff. So especially the theoretical side. So it's really fun. Uh, you know, my latest book on time travel, it's really fun to kind of theorize about different ways that we could travel through time and to explore that. And it's a great way to actually address all of the things that you want and, and still achieve some escapism at the same time as, as a means of therapy. So uh, that's my view on it. Wow. That was a very powerful and moving story, Roy. I'm astounded, impressed, amazed that after all you've been through, you're still an optimist. And I want to thank you for coming on to tell me what happened. And I do look forward to reading your latest science fiction novel, Seven Rules of Time Travel. So that's our show. Thanks again to Roy Huff and to our sponsors. Specifically, I'd like to thank Sidelining Publishing and LaughSaver.com for their support. We're going to end this show, as we usually do, with Susan Salador's classic song, Every Moment, Every Day, which is available on Spotify, BTW. So until next time, this is Jay Rehack asking you all to stay safe out there and try not to hurt anybody. It is possible to be thankful every moment, every day. It, it takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It takes possible to be wisdom to see it every day. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It is possible to be thankful to see it every day. It takes practice. And humility, it takes vision and civility, it takes practice and wisdom to see 
it as a villainy. It takes practice and the wisdom to see it as a villainy. It takes beauty and the wisdom to see it everywhere. It is possible to be thankful every moment, every day.